1 through 11. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So uh, obviously that's uh, one we'll have to circle back on towards the the end there. There's so many concepts and so much good content in that that section. And, you know, 1 John is such a funny letter. It's kind of, you know, we've talked about the Johannian community was, you know, obviously a, a powerfully important Christian community, but they kind of had their own language and their own slogans and their own set of concepts that they used to talk about theological principles. It's like, uh, I don't know, imagine a thousand years from the future, from now in the future, someone uh, finds a text or a hymn book from uh, an evangelical church and concludes upon reading the text of Shine, Jesus, Shine, that we had a, I don't know, a contemporary primitive people, we had a fixation or maybe even a robust theology of Jesus as a light bulb. It's just kind of tough to kind of figure out how it is that these slogans and these sayings work in specific contexts. But once you do, and once you kind of locate them in what that community meant by them, you can see a lot of things in these sayings and slogans that tell you something amazing about the character of Jesus, that tell you something beautiful about uh, the character of the gospel. So you got to kind of get to know the community to understand it. And that's a big theme for reading First John, and for more importantly, I think, what the Spirit is trying to say here. By the way, seeing and touching is going to come roaring back here, too, as you might imagine. We've been talking about the character and identity of Jesus in First John's commitment to defending the idea of Jesus as Christ in the flesh. Like as a tangible, real, material human being who is also fully God. And that, I mean, obviously not a small thing theologically, and all the things we've kind of talked about in First John, the uh, issues of church discipline, the issues of doctrine, all those things are kind of tied up, as, as we've been talking about, in the basic question of, you know, Jesus and what exactly uh, Jesus does, what exactly Jesus means, etc. It's, uh, you know, one of my favorite theologians is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he has this kind of elegant, beautiful way, as a book that is in part about First John, he has this kind of elegant, beautiful way of putting the question that he thinks that this gospel is asking. Like, lots of folks might ask, I don't know, how is the infinite God present in a finite being? Talked about a temporality of covenants in Sunday school today. Uh, lots of folks might ask, 
what exactly is the character of God that's revealed in Jesus? Those are all kind of important questions. Who's, what's, how's. But the most important question is the question, Bonhoeffer says, of who? And uh, for First John, especially for this chapter 4, it's a very, very precise version of not what, not where, not when, not why the incarnation, but who is made present in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is God as manifest in the person of Jesus Christ? And, you know, the idea of knowing a who, as we've talked about before, at least to me, is, is you know, creates a real different sense of, of how you know someone. You know a who differently than you know a what or a when or a why. You know a who relationally, and I don't just mean it in the sense of like, I know, like if you grew up in an evangelical community, everyone talked about relational witnessing, which basically meant like being buddies with someone so they could get to see the kind of character of the gospel. But relationship in this instance is even bigger and broader than that. Knowing who God is as manifest in Jesus is not just getting to know, kind of getting to know who God is, but it's about the idea that we might not only know God, but experience God and be touched by God and be transformed by God. Because that's what it means to know a who. That's the weird thing about knowing things as, as people or persons instead of just concepts that, that has the possibility of fundamentally changing and, and transforming us. And what is it that changes and transforms us? Well, the point of First John here, I think, is that we are changed and transformed and we come to know both by and in love. By loving and by being loved by someone. It's like Beth knows me like nobody else. You know, I hope you have a spouse or a friend that you could say the same thing about, because at least my experience in marriage is to truly love is, is not just to be kind of in love with the image of a person, is not just to be in love with the idea of a person. It's to like really encounter and see them for who they are. And instead of being disappointed or delighted, instead just to accept them exactly as they are. And in fact, when you know a who in love, the kind of calculation changes. It's not just about who you are. It's not just about who they are. It's about who you become together. That the relationship becomes the defining terms by which you might be defined, they might be defined, but more importantly, the question of what you are as a unit or as a combination. And as a result, like one of the things that's unique about knowing a who is you're not just like learning what the person will likely say, or you're not just learning, uh, you know, what they might do. You're not just learning their background, but you're learning their character, their, their persona, their trustworthiness. Relationship is a different, and the question of who is a different kind of knowing something. It's not focused on the individual. It's not focused on qualities or characteristics necessarily. It's about experiencing another person in terms that sometimes are beyond language, but that causes them to know them, to be with them, and to be defined by them in a way that we couldn't possibly understand if someone were just to lay it out in words. And the beauty of knowing a who is that you know something where the sum of the uh, parts is so much greater than the individual elements of it. And in a way, that's what love is. When you think about love, well, let's look at the text for today. It was a long intro to get to the text compared to normal. But let's, let's think about the text today from the perspective of who God is as manifest in Jesus. So verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but tr- test the spirits to see whether they are from God, bless you, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, as you know, I've kind of done this rant before, but dear friends is kind of a tepid translation. Hopefully some of y'all have beloved but the word there is agapitoi, beloveds. And the idea is that, as I mentioned before, it's a funny word because it's not just saying, 
hey, you're someone who's loved or loved on in the kind of Southern sense, if you accept that framing. It means uh, the beloveds are a community. It's not just a compliment to someone. It's a description of a group of people who are gathered together because they love each other and they are loved by each other. And that love becomes the defining principle. That's who John is addressing this argument to, those beloveds, those ones who become a who together. And he says, do not trust every spirit. Now, one of the slogan elements in John that we need to work out, because John, John, the John Johannine tradition talks about spirits a lot and kind of have to refer back to spirits delivered on the porch a long while back. But do you remember that thing about spirit? We have this vision of spirit, which is something like spirit is, I don't know, a transcendent soul or maybe a ghost. And we're kind of influenced by things we've heard around the fire and by the Greeks and maybe by Halloween or whatever. But when our culture, when we talk about spirit, we mean something like, I don't know, it's an entity that has cognition and emotion and intention, but it's kind of defined by the fact that it doesn't have a material body. We think about spirit in these kind of abstract senses. But for the Johannian community, spirit meant something much different. And if you remember from that series, however long ago that was, the root word for spirit is pneuma, which is also the kind of core word for breath or for breathing. And so when John's talking about when the first John's talking about a spirit, it's not talking about some intangible thing. It's talking about that kind of magic combination, but not literally magic, between words, the breath of the person, and the body. So if you talk to someone in the Johannian community and said, what is the spirit that is manifest here? What they'd be talking about is how the individuals in the community were speaking, what motivated them, what inspired them, the literal breath that comes out of their mouths. For John, the idea of spirit was all those things together. It's about looking at the kind of movement and culmination of a person's words and ideas. So spirit here is not something that is intangible. Spirit here, just like breath and watching someone's chest rise and fall, or just like the moving of the wind, that idea of spirit is not something that's supposed to be non-material. It's supposed to be eminently tangible. And so for the community that John came from to say the idea of testing the spirits was, I don't know, it was a pretty useful principle for them. I imagine because like here's this community that's going through this big theological rift. They've been torn up by all kinds of theological differences. And I don't know if you spent much time ever arguing a theological or a spiritual proposition with someone, the funny thing about it is that people will kind of be saying the same thing. They'll kind of be saying the same words. They might even be saying the same concepts, but you have to kind of dig underneath it and think about the spirit that informs what they're saying and why they're saying. So if you've got a religious community that's beset by false prophets proclaiming false things, it'd be awfully useful to say, what is the spirit that informs the things that they're saying? Where does it come from? Even if we're saying similar words, what's the difference in them? And that's, that's what spirit meant for them. Like our English word for spirit that might be closer is inspiration. Like when we talk about the inspiration of someone, we're talking about the stuff that makes them do what they do, what drives them and moves them. And it's not simply about something that is abstract and beyond them. It's something that you see and who they are and what they do. And because you could do that, according to 1 John, you could test spirits. Not just by arguing about the specific words or concepts, but you could think about like what they were bringing into the world. What is it that they were trying to say? What motivated them? And so if you want to focus on, what, what, on whether or not what someone is saying is true, you don't just focus on like the strength of the arguments or the propositions. As these folks thought about spirit, you should test their words and ideas and their actions by where they came from or what motivated them. 
So the word for test here is dokimazo. And in classic Greek, it was the word that meant to test, to assaying, to test whether or not something was really gold by, in their case, applying heat to it. So someone gives you a big pile of gold coins, which happens to me all the time, and you need to figure out whether or not they're the real items. So what you do is you take a couple of the coins and you put them in a little, I don't know, what do you even call that thing? Someone knows the little crucible. crucible. Yes, thanks, Trey. You take the crucible, you put it under fire, and basically you'd know that they were real gold because it would separate out, and you have this pool of molten gold at the bottom and some impurities at the top, and if it was fake, there'd be lots more impurities than there were gold. But that's what dokimazo test means. It means put it, subject something to fire in order to understand its true composition or characteristics to see if it lives up to its stated worth. That's what John is saying you should do to the spirit of the others in the community who are making different kinds of claims about who God is. True gold would, as they thought about it, essentially survive the fire and be purified by it. And what John's suggesting here is something like a spiritual assay. Spirits are tangible things in the world. If you look at a community and you figure out what people are saying, the divisions that come from it, what motivates them, you, you, you subject it to the fire and you see if what comes out is pure because you can't just trust the gold coin on its face. You can't just trust the claim on its face. You have to be able to tell whether or not the thing is motivated by or inspired by the Spirit of God. And so what's the kind of way that they do this assay? Well, verses 2 and 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. And I love how simple this is. I remember as a kid when people talk about the gift of discernment, it felt like this weird kind of gut feeling or inspired intuition. And you kind of try and figure out what you thought about something or didn't thought, think about something on the basis of your kind of visceral reaction to it. But the test that John is suggesting here is so much easier and so much clearer. If someone's making a claim, ask if, the incarnate Jesus is behind it. Ask if it recognizes that God has come into the world. Ask if it recognizes, and in fact, if it's, if it's made by a person who believes God is a spirit or a person who believes Jesus is only a man, and if it comes from one of those people, don't trust it. It failed the test. And you know, why does that test work? That's the crucial thing that makes this, it starts to get really interesting. I love this, I love this verse. I didn't think I would. Because we know who Jesus is. That's why it makes the test easier, and that's why it's something you can pass or fail. So four, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And I just, I love the word for overcome. And it's a word that you know, even if you don't know, you know it. I'll give you a hint. Look at your shoes, especially if you're a kid. Nike. Okay, the word here is nenikate, which is a derivative of Nike. And this is a slogan. Like, this is said, as I, I think I remember right, this is said only in the context of the Johannian tradition, and it's, it's used twice here. And it's one of those things where, in saying it, you're implying something much bigger. You're implying or bringing to bear a much, much bigger story, uh, a slogan that we don't really see, but that was, I think, awesome once you see the thing behind it. So if you grew up in a culture where the Greeks really influenced everything, and uh, you heard that word Nike or a Nike derivative, you would have immediately recalled what story? Eh? Marathon. Marathon, Phidippides. So there's this guy, 
uh, I think Homer's the first Pheidippides. In 490 BC, he ran, curious, because it's the exact same length as Marathon, it's weird, 26.2 miles from a place called Marathon to Athens to let the folks in the assembly know that Athens had won, so they didn't have to like mobilize the troops. And the story behind Pheidippides that's so interesting is that he had good reason to believe that when he got there, that people wouldn't believe him. They thought they want, because they kind of wanted to continue the war. So he ran these 26.2 miles and he bursts into the forum and he screams, Nike! And uh, then he, which is the name of the Greek goddess of victory. Nike, you have won, take joy. And then, remember what happens? He drops dead. I mean, I'd, I'd do that with a half marathon or a, gosh, a turkey trot, but whatever. So, he drops dead, and, and the death is not just an interesting detail in this story. It actually is the kind of proof or validation of the story. Right? Phidippides has to die so that the folks will believe him that the victory had been won. And once you start to think about overcoming overcomers that way as that vision of victory, all of a sudden it's not too hard to see the parallels between the two here. You know what I mean? Like, think about the richness and meaning that this would have had for them with that, that background. Phidippides is the model of taking joy in a victory. He runs so fast to tell the news that he dies. Both Pheidippides and Christ have kind of sort of traveled from one place to another to announce joy, and they deliver the message by dying. Bless you. Most of the time, dying is a sure sign of defeat. But here, dying proves the truth of the message. The death here is not the kind of tragic death of the defeated, it's the death of one who was one, whose joy is so great that they could run those 26.2 miles and give their life for their fellow citizens, whether it be Athens or whether it be the kingdom of God. It's a pretty important detail because we have won because Christ is megas, remember that, greater than the one who is in the world. And that idea of greater is not referred to along a specific property. If someone's like something is greater, X is greater than Y, I'd say in what respect or in what regard. But here, there's no reference to it. Christ is just universally greater than the one who is in the world. And the point here that's so funny is in most, in a lot of kind of Christian spiritual traditions, we've thought about this as setting up a division between the world and Christ so that Christ is out of the world. Here's the world. Here's the perspective of the world. The virtue of Christ is that Christ's perspective is not the perspective of the world. But the point of the passage is that Christ is in us. And because Christ is in us and we are in the world, Christ is greater because Christ is both in the world and outside of it. That Christ's greatness is such that encompasses the entirety of the cosmos. And as a result, because we testify, we're, he's been testified to and we know that Christ is God, we're able to be adopted into the citizens of the kingdom of God even while we are in the world. Think about then what this kind of declaration of victory is. You put together Phidippides and greater. We are the victors who know that the victory of love has been won. We are the victors, like, you know, uh, folks in the world can say it or they can think it, or, but they likely won't get it. They don't understand the kind of certainty of and the fact that that victory has been secured. They don't understand that there's no battle to be had. That battle is over. Jesus has defeated the forces of death and destruction even more thoroughly than the Greeks rousted the Persians at Marathon. 
And the spirits aligned against him don't know that love has already won the victory and that their hold on the world is perishing. Victory and love are the tests. And the main question is, does the person who I'm arguing with, speaking to, engaging with, realize that Christ has come down, has won, has died, and has risen again to inaugurate the kingdom of love? That's it. That's the spiritual assay for testing any claim. That is the standard for deciding what, uh, whether or not an argument is right or wrong theologically or doctrinally or whatever. And that it reveals the kind of gold of inestimable, excuse me, that's a hard word, inestimable value. Look at five and six. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. What does it mean to be an agapitoi? What does it mean to be a beloved? It, of course, in some sense is not siding with the world, but it's also being in the world and realizing that the victory is already won. And that the proof of the victory is a death. But that that death is a victory in that it secures the possibility for us to know and to love God. It is a way of identifying a community of folks who recognize that Christ has loved us enough to come, to die, and to win. Not just a tragic hero who dies for the cause and we weep over, but one who dies and lives again to make the cause complete. Mega Nike, I guess is the way you'd say it. And that that idea... Because, you know, I was like, why does it skip to love all of a sudden when it's talking about the character of the world? But that's the point. Love is defined by the person of Jesus, or Christ coming in the flesh, dying and rising for us to establish a kingdom of love to ensure us that the victory is already won. That's why the reference to overcomers. Seeing that is not learning about God's victory. It's the victory. It connects us to the person of Christ. It connects us to one another. It connects us to people who understand that that sacrifice is not simply tragic, but that it's heroic and that the sacrifice and the death are the founding of a victory and the victory whose overcoming we should take for granted from the spirits of death and destruction that we are given a Messiah and a a messenger whose message is the character of that victory, who defines the idea of love by giving up everything for the good of your friends and who doing so does not allow love to die, but instead makes love rise again. It's beautiful. That's why verse 8 is the logical conclusion of the story of Christ's victory. Those who do not love do not know God, because God is love. It doesn't matter if you say all the right things about God, if you have the right words and the wrong spirit or the wrong inspiration, you're wrong. They fail the test. See, because love is not an abstraction. Love is a tangible thing. You have to be able to, I don't know, walk up to it and touch it. You have to experience it directly in death and in victory. That is what it means to say that God is love. There are all kinds of people who will say easily God is love. You know, a lot of new agey folks will say God is love. You're hippies, you're Unitarians. Beth and I just watched this documentary about a lady in Colorado who called herself Mother God and basically branded her cult around the idea that God is love. Like all kinds of people outside of the Christian tradition will say, well, of course God is love. And what they mean by that is that God is a very, very, very nice spirit or ghost that governs the universe, is intangible. And a lot of times people say God is love to say there can't be a definition of God 
Because God is love and God is so much bigger than that definition. And what we really need to do is just kind of align God with good intention in the universe. When the Christian says, and when John says in calling us victors that God is love, the letter is not saying any of that. It's saying God is tangible, material, has a body, can and did die, and rose again, and in doing so demonstrates what real love that you can touch looks like. Who dies to deliver the message, but declares the victory in that death, saving all of us. You can say the words, God is love, all you want, but if you're not inspired by the spirit, the breath, the concrete reality, the IRL or meat spaces, kids say these days, you do not get it. Because the material presence of the person of Christ is the thing that demonstrates the love of a God who can be touched, who can be seen, and who can defeat death and destruction. This is how God made, uh, this is how God showed his love among us. I guess that's nine. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, We ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete. Look, there's the whole kind of coming full circle seeing thing again. We could say God loves us abstractly. We could say God loves us as a principle. The person of Christ gives our eyes something to grab onto, makes it possible for us to touch God's love, makes it possible for us to see it in him, in his story, in his body, in our community, and all those things. And the way we know things, the way that we validate the presence of love is that we were able to experience something that is touchable and relatable and tangible and, and historical, not simply an abstract spiritual concept, but a dying hero that your eyes can grab onto who wins the victory by being resurrected. That's how God shows what real, tangible, connectable, sacrificial love looks like that's not just an abstraction, but is the center of our community. And when we lock our eyes on him, and when we lock our eyes on that story, and when we lock our eyes on the story of the birth and the death and resurrection, it's not simply that we conceptualize God. We touch and grab God with our eyes, that Christ is the thing that makes it possible for us to show God's love concretely, and in doing so to validate its character's love. What's wrong? Is that really the easiest way to do it? Anyway, love. <laughs> Questions? That was actually literally the end, so. So sometimes touching is not loving. Anyway, any questions? Yeah, it's a build-up thing. Oh. All right, let me start over. No. All right, prayers to the people. What do y'all got? Pray for Gabe's face. Yeah. <laughs>